uh, need a Bible, raise your hand. You can, if you can all stand for the reading of God's Word, that would be great. Acts chapter 9. By the way, what do you guys think of Garrett? Wasn't he wonderful? He's just, just such a dear friend and a wonderful man of God, and it's just a blessing having him in here. If you weren't here, you can get his message on the web soon. Bibles, anyone? You can raise your hand if you don't have your Bible. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be going over a few of the verses we were in a few weeks ago and then moving on. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, speaking of Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Paul, Saul said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we're here this morning, Lord. I just think of I think of what well the world drinks from and the well that many of us drank from for, for so many years, Lord, and just wells that just dried up. But Father, here we are, Lord, drinking from the well that will never, ever, ever, ever run dry. We praise you, Lord, for your grace that we're here by a miracle, by a miracle that you have wrought in our heart. Lord, you, we are uh, uh, we're here uh, drawing from the well of life. And that's what we want uh, for uh, ourselves this morning, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that you would uh, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with the Holy Spirit, Lord, that I would not be a distraction, but rather just a vessel to make your known word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So the book of Acts, what's the book of Acts all about? It's the fifth book of the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament. As you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they're an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, Jesus Christ, very much the center stage, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, as he... Uh, uh, the writers there chronicling his travels from town to town, region to region. Uh, those books, though, also introduce Jesus is center stage, but it also introduced uh, many men and women who traveled with Jesus. The apostles, 12 men Jesus called to be with him. But actually, and I really never knew this uh, until actually many years uh, into uh, my relationship with God, that many other people uh, traveled with Jesus. And, and actually stayed with him throughout the course of his ministry. Men and women, Luke 10 refers to 70 uh, that he taught and, and sent out to teach the kingdom of God. There are also women who travel with Jesus, Mark 15. Uh, verse 40 describes these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, of James, uh, and Salome who followed Jesus and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Jesus 
revolutionized the status of women. You want to know what women, how women lived uh, prior to Jesus coming? Just take a look at the uh, Arab nations today and how the women live today. Jesus liberated them. Men and women uh, traveled with him. But uh, in these Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make no mistake about it, it was not them but Jesus who was center stage. You know, in my own devotion time, I'm in the latter part of uh, the book of Luke, and by this time Jesus has many who are coming to try to trap him uh, in words, and uh, his enemies are trying really hard to... to get him to say something or do something so they have, could have an excuse to arrest him. Uh, and so they'd actually send spies. They actually is referred to as spies uh, uh, to go and ask him questions. For example, remember the one uh, where they asked him, asked Jesus, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, to the king? And uh, this was like a trap because if you said no, they'd have them arrested for stirring a people uh, against Rome. If he said, uh, well, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, there were Jews who would really see him as a traitor. Remember how Jesus responded. He said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the uh, uh, things that are God's. And, uh, and, and, you know, they're like, wait, that's not how you are supposed to answer, you know. And, 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 but Jesus always answered like that. And finally, they just gave up. But in spite of all the other people around who had gathered around Jesus, apostles, disciples, those other men and women ministering to him and with him, if someone was asking questions, everyone knew who was going to be answering. It was going to be Jesus. If someone came up to the group, you know, hey, why is it that you guys fast? Uh, rather, why is it that you guys don't fast? You know, you guys eat, you drink, you're, you're going from feast to feast. You know, religious people are supposed to fast. Why don't you? Well, what happened? You know, everyone sort of in perfect cadence, their heads would go, you know, everyone's heads went to, uh, to Jesus. Why? He was center stage. Well, at the end of Matthew uh, and Luke, what you read is that Jesus is, he's, uh, uh, at the end of the Gospels, he's, he's crucified, he's resurrected. He, he's, then he's taken, after 40 days, he's taken to heaven. Now, you have all these men and women who have been following Jesus for three years. They're left behind. And you can just imagine them looking at each other thinking, well, what do we do now? Uh, what if someone comes and asks us a question? You know, who's going to answer it? Jesus is gone. You know, what happens next? Well, that is what the book of Acts is all about. It's what happened Next, the book of Acts is is what all those people who had hung out with Jesus for three years and others as well did after he left. Now, one of the first things that happened after Jesus left was he came back, right? He came back, Acts chapter 2. He came back in the person of the Holy Spirit, by and through uh, the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, the church is born, and the men and women who had been with Jesus for three years, suddenly they are center stage. No longer Jesus in the flesh, they are center stage with Jesus living through them. That's what your life in Christ is all about. In a real sense... God puts you in center stage of whatever calling he's got you in with Jesus living 
through you. So in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, those same enemies of Jesus came to him. Uh, he's no longer around in the flesh and they started asking him questions. For example, in Acts chapter 4, they asked Peter and John, by what power, by what name have you done this? They had uh, a paralyzed man. They'd prayed for him. He had uh, been, now he was walking around. And I don't know what P- Peter's initial reaction to that was. And wait a second, why are you asking me? Are you expecting me to answer this question? Am I Jesus? Well, he couldn't do that anymore. In Acts chapter 5, when the enemies of Christ, they, uh, they, they dragged all the apostles before uh, them. And they said, um, didn't we strictly command you not to teach about this guy, Jesus? And were you doing the very thing that we told you not to do? So no longer can the apostles with perfect timing, you know, all sort of turn their heads towards Jesus. Go for it, Jesus. They can't do that anymore. They had to answer for themselves. They're now in center stage filled with the Holy Spirit with Jesus living through them. That's what Acts is all about. It's what happened next after Jesus was taken up into heaven And God means for us to be in our lives really a continuation of the book of Acts. And you hear, and we've talked about this, that, you know, our life really is about Acts um, 29. Acts 29. We're completing the story. And so... um, up to this point in Acts, we're now in chapter 9. We've read about, actually, the book of Acts introduces some new people who were not with uh, Jesus during his three-year ministry. Rather, they came to faith in Christ after. We have uh, learned about Stephen, another Philip. In Acts chapter 9, here in chapter 9, we're introduced to another Saul. Now, we first read about Saul in Acts uh, 8 verse 1. Just turn back there with me. It says, what does it say in Acts 8 verse 1 in your Bibles? It says... Now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul was consenting to, to his death. Whose death? Stephen's death. Paul was on a judicial council. You can call him a judge at this time. He cast his vote to have Stephen actually murdered. And then it says in verse 2, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. They were weeping. Verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And we talked about this word havoc. It's the Greek word lumino, which was a word that was used in the Greek to describe a wild animal tearing into flesh. You know, ever see that in one of those wild, wild kingdom movies, you know, about Africa, you know, this lion just ripping apart flesh. Lumino is the Greek word they would have used to describe that, that act there. So the next time we read about Saul is the verse we started reading this morning, verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, then Saul, breathing out, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests. Now, There's another description of Saul at this time in his life. There's actually several others in the New Testament given by his own words. Paul describes in his own words what he was like at this time. Why don't you turn with me to Acts 26 because I would like to read that. Now, Paul describes what he was like prior to Christ 
several different times, and we're going to go over a couple of those this morning. One here is here in Acts 26, verse 9. Acts 26, verse 9. Just go a little to the right. It says this. This is Paul describing himself at this very same time. So describing him what he was like at this time, the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Verse 9 of chapter 26 says, Indeed, this is Paul speaking, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So he would like, didn't content himself with staying there. He went off um, to other countries uh, to, to chase them down. Now, uh, so, uh, we, we first saw in, in verse 3 of chapter 8 that Paul dragged men and women out of their homes. In verse 12 here in chapter 26, it says he, he compelled them to blaspheme, meaning he renounced Jesus or we will kill you. Uh, some renounced Jesus, others didn't. When they didn't, verse 11 here in chapter 26 says, Paul put them to death. So that's who Paul, that's who Saul, that's who this Saul was. That's who they were. That's who he was. So turn back again to Acts chapter 9. So in Acts chapter 9, it says in verse 1, he, he, he's on his, um, actually, verse 1 and 2, it says he's on his way to Damascus and uh, to arrest and find more of these Christians. And in verse 3, it says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so, and so, here you see the most gracious thing that God ever does in a human life. You see it right here. The most gracious thing that God has ever done in your life or mine is when he comes along and he tears the blinders away from our eyes and we realize that everything, everything that we have been doing in our life has been in outright opposition to God. That's the most gracious thing that God can ever do for you. Well, Lord, I thought I was doing you a favor living the, living the life I was living. Actually, I, I've, been carrying, I've been carrying out a war against you. That's the most gracious thing that God can ever do for you to bring you to that realization that you've been at war with Him. Verse 6 says this, So he, speaking of Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
So he goes into the city. A man, a believer in Christ named Ananias, meets up with him there. Let's pick up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 9. It says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So this is important. Listen. Notice. may seem obvious, but we need to slow down and really consider these things. The Holy Spirit doesn't hesitate to enter Paul here. You don't see the Holy Spirit hesitating to enter Paul. The Holy Spirit fills him. His sight returns. His sight returns, rather, and something fell from his eyes. It says something like scales. Uh, Paul went uh, three days without sight, blind. Now, I believe striking him blind was the Lord's way of communicating to him. Saul, you've been totally, totally blind in the way you have been living your life. And God gave him three days so that would really, really sink in. The Holy Spirit doesn't hesitate, though, to enter this man. Before coming in and filling Paul, the Holy Spirit doesn't say. So have you ever forced anyone to blaspheme Jesus? Have you ever killed anyone? None of that. No hesitation. The Holy Spirit just comes in and fills him. Why? Why does God save a guy like this? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Meaning, God used Paul, formerly Saul, to demonstrate that God will save anyone, no matter what they've done, he will save anyone. And, and so, you know... We look at this story, we read it, and sometimes uh, we read this story, and 2,000 years after the fact, we read of Saul coming to Christ, and we sort of say, you know, oh, how nice, God saved this, t- this guy, Paul, who was out, you know, killing people. God, God saved him and used him a lot. You get a warm, fuzzy feeling. But Paul was really, you know who he was? He, he, he was... Nothing much more than a legally sanctioned serial killer. The terror he inflicted on so many people. The children who were left as orphans because of him. The women who were left as widows. You know, it seems like almost every decade at least one serial killer... A serial killer goes on a rampage in the United States of America. I think there's some situation going on now. When I was in my teens, yes, it was in the 70s, um, there was a serial killer by the name of David Berkowitz. And he was uh, called himself the son of Sam. Now, at the time, this was like everyone knew about this guy, the son of Sam. And I won't ask you to raise your hand. if you, You'll be dating yourself if you've heard of him. But he began... 
killing people in New York City and he brought the entire city to its knees. Can you imagine that? Just some random guy bringing the whole city of New York to its knees. He's going around killing people. I understand that. There was so much hysteria over uh, at that time. The women were all dyeing their hair black. I think it was black because apparently uh, the women he was killing had blonde hair. So, and, and I understand you couldn't even find dye, black hair dye anymore. That's how crazy it was. That's how much control this guy had over this city. He's just terrorizing it. And, and you know, he, he was caught eventually. He was thrown in prison. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. That he was behind bars. But after a couple of years, this guy, David Berkowitz, he put his faith in Christ. And it really looks, well, today we know for sure it was the real thing. Because he served in prison ministry ever since. They don't have the death penalty there. He's actually been in correspondence with Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. Done a lot of work with Brooklyn Tabernacle. Many of us are... Uh, familiar with their wonderful uh, ministry there. And every time he's up for parole, he refuses because he says he deserves to spend the rest of his life in, in, in prison. And, and he, he's really into sort of trying to minister to the victims' families. He just thinks that would be terrible to do to the victims' families. Came to Christ, another serial killer, Ted Bundy. He also gave his life to Christ. Now, I, you know, I spent some time reading about what Ted Bundy did and they've written books about him and it is just mind-boggling the terror that he inflicted on, on women, on, on like a killing rampage. And, and but there was so much, there was so much, there was just huge controversy and anger around these guys uh, putting their faith in Christ. I mean, and, and people, well, you, people were like, you talk about the cruelest kind of injustice. You mean to tell me that this guy can just go out and do whatever he wants to do and all he has to do is put his faith in Christ. That's unfair. How can you believe in a God, a doctrine, a, 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 a faith like that? You know, people have been saying that for 3,000 years. I was... I'm also in, in the Old Testament, a male Bible study in, in, in the book of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21 to 23, very familiar verses actually. It says this. Now listen, you don't have to turn there. I'll, 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 I'll read it. It says this in Ezekiel 18, verse 21. But if a wicked man, this is God speaking through Ezekiel. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? And not that he should turn from his ways and live. Now, how did the people react to this? It actually says it in verse 25. It says this. The way of the Lord is not fair. That was people's reaction to this. The way of the Lord is not fair. See, people have always had a problem with grace. But listen. God has no problem with it. In fact, he can't help but give it and give it and give it to whoever, whoever it is. Whoever actually wants it, gets it. 
Again, in, in Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Now, it, it says that the Lord has no pleasure at all. At all in the death of the wicked. Listen, we may have pleasure, some pleasure, in the te- death of the wicked. David Berkowitz, Ted, Ted Bundy, murder, serial killers, Saddam Hussein, whoever. But God doesn't. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is why he provides a way of mercy even for the most wicked. And you, Saul, as an example, so no one, no one would ever be able to say that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient for their salvation. And you know, even so, even as heinous as David Berkowitz's crimes were, Ted Bundy, Saul's, they didn't come remotely close. Listen, this is not a preacher's exaggeration. Remotely close. They were light years away from the crime that happened on the cross. Where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, of whom it is said in Colossians 1.16, that by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. The creator of the world, sinless, blameless, innocent, utterly pure. In all his behavior, he was stripped naked, naked. No loincloth like you see in, you know, in the pictures, naked. And he suffered one of the most humiliating forms of execution in the history of the world. Romans wouldn't even let Romans be crucified. It was too humiliating. And he was put to death. And guess who was guilty of putting him there? You and me. You want to talk about fair. What was fair about that? Grace. God's grace. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. So back in Acts chapter 9, Saul, who is given to us as an example, as a pattern to those who would believe on Jesus Christ for eternal life. So you have this sort of glorified serial killer and you get to ask yourself, so what does a guy like this do, you know, after he's saved? What does a guy who more or less is a glorified serial killer like Saul, what do these guys do once they're saved? Well, that's what verses 20 through 31 are about. Let's read them right now. Acts verse 20 says this. Immediately he, speaking of Saul, preached Christ, the Christ, in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. Now, I find it really interesting, by the way, quick little tidbit, that in the last thing Paul said before uh, he was saved, in verse 5 of this chapter, was, Who are you, Lord? And the first thing he says in public when he was saved uh, is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's wonderful. Verse 21, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not the one who destroyed those who called on the, this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in, in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus 
proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23, now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they, were, uh, they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by, the, uh, by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a, a disciple. They thought it was a setup. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Uh, So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and out uh, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So what does a guy who has been more or less a glorified serial killer do when he's saved? Well, you see here in these verses, verses 20 through 30. Now, you may, when we read this, our first reaction may be, wow, you know, this guy, Paul, he... He really is in, just goes right into this awesome battle for the Lord. I mean, look at this. That's certainly what my reaction was the first time I read these verses. But I want to challenge, I want to challenge you, I want to challenge us on that interpretation. You know, at Calvary Chapel, we really like to dig deep into the Word. I really, I think when you do that here, you will find that's not what's going on in these verses. So try to stay with me here. First thing, I want you to notice. Notice there's no mention in verses 20 or 30 to 30 of anyone being saved. Now, Paul is out preaching the good news, but there's no mention of anyone coming to Christ. Now, we've seen throughout the book of Acts, almost every chapter, Peter and John are preaching, and it says what? The church multiplied in number. Chapter after chapter, this is what you see. There's nothing like that here uh, in these verses. No mention of that. Now, you may say, well, that doesn't necessarily no one came to Christ. Well, before you say that, turn with me. Turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, which is another place where Paul is describing these very same events in Acts chapter 9 in his own words. In Acts chapter 20... Paul is giving his own account. And now remember, in Acts chapter 9, Paul was in Damascus. Where did he go after Damascus? Anyone? Jerusalem. So after Damascus, he went uh, in Jerusalem. Now, if you look in other places in the New Testament, he he went to Arabia in in the middle of that time. But he went from Damascus... And then eventually he makes his way in Jerusalem. And that's what the, you know, the latter verses that we read in Acts chapter 9 were about. It says in Acts chapter 9 that when he was in Jerusalem, he boldly spoke about the name of Lord Jesus, disputing against the Jews there. Well, here in verse 29, rather... Uh, in verse 20, uh, rather look in verse 17, he describes in his own words what happened when he went to Jerusalem. So this is additional information that we don't know about if we just read Acts chapter 9. 
So important for us to read the whole counsel of the Word of God so we understand it in its fullness. Acts chapter uh, 22, verse 17, Paul is describing what happened in Jerusalem. He says this, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord... They know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes um, of, of those who were killing him. And then he, Jesus, said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So remember in Acts chapter 9 when Paul went to Jerusalem, again, we read about how he was arguing with the Jews about Jesus, disputing with them. Doesn't appear that many uh, people at all were saved. Well, Jesus says right here in Acts chapter 22, he's speaking to Paul there in verse 18. He says, make haste, get out of Jerusalem, for they not receive your testimony concerning me. No one was receiving his testimony. And now here, he, in verse 19, he starts to argue with the Lord. He's saying, well, Lord, they know that I, in every synagogue I, I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And what he's saying is there, I have this great testimony, Lord. You know, I was one of them. I, I learned under the same rabbis as they did. And, and I, I, I attacked Christians. And, and I now have this great, great testimony. Surely they will receive me here. In verse 21, Jesus says back to Paul, No, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So here's the deal. What does a guy like Paul do when he gets saved, when he gives his life to Christ? Well, a lot of times he does what Paul does. He goes out. And in his own strength, or her own strength, with his own plan, with all his energy, with all his might, he just tries to do all kinds of things for the Lord. Only to find out that God himself is in nothing that he's doing. Or she's doing. Only to find out that God's will for his life, God's plan for his life, God's priority for his life was totally different than he thought it was. Now, Paul thought he had something to, to offer to the Lord. He had this great testimony. He was one of those, he's one of the Jews, so certainly if he went to the Jews, he would be able to convince them. And he just did this with all his might, he disputing. There's no fruit. There's no fruit at all. He was doing everything. It, it, he hadn't learned to hear the voice of the Lord. He was, he, he was just doing things like he had done prior to his life with Christ. And he was just going at it with all his might. So you ask, well, what was God's plan then for Paul's life at this time? What was his plan? Well, back to chapter 9. Turn back to chapter 9 uh, with me. Actually, it was very, very simple. It always is. Back to chapter 9, again in verse 29, it says, Paul spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. 
Where was Tarsus? That was Paul's home. They sent him home. God just wanted to send Paul home. Paul was in the way. He was in God's way. He was getting himself in God's way. How do we know that? Read verse 31. Then, why is it then there? Well, because Paul had been sent home. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Oh, no. I mean, it's really humbling when we realize that when God gets us out of the way, that he really starts to, that that a work really starts to, to happen because we're not even there. And that's what happened to Paul. It says, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Eek. Paul leaves. They're multiplied. There's that word multiplied again. God wanted Paul back in Tarsus. That was Paul's home. Why did he want him there? Well, there's another place. We won't turn there now in the New Testament where where Paul also talks about the events of chapter 9, and that's in Galatians chapter 1. And in that chapter, Paul's Paul's own letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about, in his own words, again, what happened in chapter 9. And in that chapter, he actually gives a timeline of the number of years that happened during this course. And what you find out is that when he went back to Tarsus, he stayed there for 8 to 10 years. And during that time, you don't hear a peep from the Apostle Paul. Nothing. And what was he doing during that time? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was pouring over the Word of God and getting to know the Lord. He hadn't a clue who the Lord was. He didn't know what grace was. All he knew was do, 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 do. All he knew was the law. All all he knew were, were rules and regs. And so Paul, no doubt in one of the most broken, frustrating time of his life. I'm sure he had to deal with a lot of anger. It's like, I did all those things. All they did was put me on a boat back to Tarsus or put me on a a coach or a donkey or whatever he went, uh, you know, over to Tarsus. And, 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 but he spent that time, and then eventually after eight, eight, eight to ten years, we'll get to this in, in a couple of chapters, Barnabas come, goes and gets him and brings him back. And then you see a guy who's used so phenomenally by the Lord. It, you know, it has been said that every person who is a Christian has been affected by this man in a profound way, not just a shallow way. But what was God's priority for him? It wasn't that he, he, he go around like a you know, madman you know, preaching about Jesus on every soapbox that he could find without first getting to know the Lord. So I have a question for every, every, everyone here, everyone in this room this morning. Do you know what God's priority for your life is? His number one priority. Do you know that? Do you understand that supremely God wants the relationship with you? That's what He wants. He wants that relationship. 
What does a guy like Paul do when he gets saved? He runs around like a madman trying to do all kinds of things for God. Why? He's trying to pay God back for all his awful behavior. But the Bible says that's, it is impossible to pay God back for anything. What were Jesus' last words on the cross before he died? John 19.20, it is finished. The Greek word tetelestai, which means it's actually a commercial term that was used by merchants. Paid in full, it means, tetelestai. The same word was stamped over, you know, bills after you paid all the money uh, on a bill that you owed, tetelestai, stamped on it. Jesus' last words on the cross, tetelestai, paid in full. Jesus paid it all. You can repay nothing. So whatever it is that you have done, you can't pay, repay God for saving. You can't repay what has already been paid by Jesus Christ. You know, we have a... We just uh, spent a couple months drafting a, a new believer's guide that we give to... that um, we're going to publish it and, and give it to, to folks who come to know the Lord. And if you'd like a copy, you can um, ask... Uh, you can just ask me for one or ask us for one. But... I'd never really liked many of these things that you get. You know, I've seen them over the years because I didn't really like the emphasis. And when we drafted this, we emphasize. In fact, we just pasted all over this thing that God's desire for you now that you've given your life to Him is that you know Him. And the first verse that we... Quote here, John seventeen three. This is eternal life that they Christians may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And and this is this is what we just want to start giving out, so people really you know understand this. There's such a tendency. Someone comes to know Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, it's just like a, like a dump truck. The church unloads on them everything they have to do. But the Lord wants us to. Supremely first to know him, to know him. You know, maybe you're a Christian and you've spent years living in a lukewarm, fruitless, backslidden life. And, you know, you can't leave this room and go out and try to work yourself into a frenzy for the Lord to try to pay him back. You can't do that. But what you can do and what's God's priority, God's priority for you really, really, really is is for you simply to leave your past behind, no matter how time, many times you failed, and you just go home to Tarsus. Meaning, you just get to, go, get to know God. Open up the Word of God. Get into the Bible studies here, the, the, you know, the church services, and, and get to know Him, but most importantly, your own. Open up the Word of God. Focus in on first on the New Testament. Get to know who Jesus is. That, this is eternal life. This is, Jesus said that in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life. That you know Him, the Father, and His Son, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so, look, we'll close there now. And we'll continue on uh, next week in verse uh, 30, 32. But I really want, you know, anyone. We'll have people up here. Uh, available to pray with you after the service. If you, if you just want to pray to the Lord and be vulnerable before the Lord, just, Lord, I want, I want to live 
according to your priority for me. And you want the grace to do that. God's willing to give grace to whoever wants it. There'll be people for prayer after. Actually, if the worship team could come up, why don't we uh, we'll close in prayer now. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful uh, message of grace that we get here, Lord, of how much you want to give, Lord. And that's all you have ever wanted to do, Lord, since, since you created Adam and Eve. You just wanted to give. And Lord, I just pray that every man and woman and child in this room, Lord, you would deepen their sense uh, of that and, and bring them to the place, Lord, through all the anger, all the frustration, all the, all the, the banging of the heads against the wall, Lord, when it comes to finding a purpose in life and lead them through that just as you did with Paul when he went back home and, and, and get him to... Lord, get them to just get to know you and the privacy of their, their home, Lord. They get into your word and get to know you, Lord. And what a blessing it is, Lord, to be completely content in you alone, apart from any career, apart from any relationship, apart from any other thing in this world, Lord, that, that a relationship with you there's full satisfaction and contentment, Lord. I pray that you bring us all, Lord, all to that place as you're leading us into your word by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.